From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. In the early 2000s, Kent Pilkowski supervised the sales division of the Organic Foods Group at General Mills. It was a time before everybody you knew was launching a food and beverage brand, and Kent worked on startups including Muir Glen and Cascadian Farms, names you probably see and know now in your grocery store. He saw the way our diets were trending and the proclivity for disruption in the industry, and he decided to leave the Fortune 500 world and start Ignite Sales Management, a business development firm specializing in natural and organic foods. Before selling the company about three and a half years ago, Kent worked with Talenti, Good Karma, Beyond Meat, and several other hot brands that have sold or gone public. Today, he works as an advisor, a board member in several companies, and as the lead investor in Peace Coffee. Kent and I talked recently about the pipeline for food startups and how much it's changed over the last decade. And I told Kent he had to come on by all means. He said no about 10 times. And then finally, I twisted his arm and here he is today. Kent, thanks for joining me. Happy to be here. Thank you. Your first podcast adventure. You were very diligent. So thank you. Yes, it is. Well, you have such an interesting story. And from the perspective of the big company and how they're innovating and the way that I I found you was we were doing a story in Twin Cities Business about how many startups in this town, in the Twin Cities, can be traced back to General Mills. Someone who was at General Mills left and started their own thing. And I just thought it was really interesting and literally wanted to map it out. And I kept talking to people to make sure we weren't missing brands. And I kept hearing, you got to talk to Kent. I'm like, who is this Kent guy? <laughs> and I found my way to you. So set the scene for us. Were you were you always interested in, in business? Did you want to go work at a big company like General Mills? How did you end up there? I'm joking because it's kind of like Oz, right? Who is this person behind the uh, behind the scenes? Yeah, and you kind of like that, right? You like oh, totally. Behind I do. The scenes. I like yeah. that a lot. So, um, background. So, yeah, out of college, um, a lot has changed in the last 25 years. But mm-hmm. General Mills actually came to the University of Nebraska Lincoln, which is where I went to school. Um, I didn't have the foresight. I mean, the reality is, why did you choose food? You didn't know any better. I mean, it was a job. At that point, the job market was really, really tight. I didn't have aspirations to be in the CPG world, in the sales world, in the food world. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Uh And um, they kind of came to campus, hit it off with the recruiter. Before you know it, you're taking a job. That was in the summer of 1993. Okay. And uh, the corporate path at that point is very different than today. A lot of consolidation in the food industry. So back then, I moved... I, I. 13, 14 different times around the country in the first eight years. I mean, all for it, General Mills? All for General Mills. It was every six to 12 months you're going somewhere else. And that was just part of the corporate sales path to give you exposure with all roads eventually leading to Minneapolis, which became more general management. Mm. So I look back and was extremely lucky to get the exposure at so many different facets within the food organism, within the food Industry, I guess, Mm -hmm. starting at the most ground level, which is physically walking into grocery stores and stocking shelves. Hmm. And then as you expanded, as you progressed in the career path, you end up with bigger customers, larger customers, more strategic. You get into kind of cross-functionality with marketing and trade marketing and analytics and everything like that. General Mills did an amazing job at exposing me to so many different facets of the, of, of the food industry that really set the foundation for me at least to go launch into something else. And that same thing can be said going back to the initial article of all these other people have been trained so well as general managers and have been exposed so much to give them the confidence, the understanding, the insight, the experience to launch off and do something on their own, which is why you see a lot of the General Mills alum doing that today. If you can remember back to those early years, did you love 
food or come to love the business of food or was it just business in general? What what fueled you? Um, it was the business in general. I mean, it's the concept of sales, which is, you know, you, you kind of know what you know. I grew up in a small company. I didn't even know what marketing was, let alone getting into public relations or analytics or consumer insights or operations. Or You don't even know what that is. And being a small town, it's easy to get your head around sales. So that was intuitive that you kind of understood what that meant mm-hmm. and what that could be. It was more about business and sales than it was about food. Food kind of was a byproduct. Now, so much has changed in 25 years. Food is fashionable. Food is sexy and trendy and people love to take pictures of food and talk about food and the concept of foodie that didn't exist 25 years ago yeah, food what was is function. that why why do you think that has changed so dramatically oh my gosh like i mean the fashion of it i think is just the fashion of everything mm-hmm. you know if you just think of what what we deem fashionable 25 years ago relative to what we do today that's just kind of the evolution of life you go back to the 60s and 70s and 80s where clothing and different things like that Food has become a lot more fashionable, and I mm-hmm. think a lot of that has to do with environment, ingredients, or even our understanding of better for you, which right. is back then better for you was low fat. Mm-hmm. Like that, that was that's what we ate in college. Like if it didn't have fat, you know, didn't. I mean, if it, if it had fat, it was bad for you. If you didn't, it was good for you. Calories didn't matter. Well, now you get into so many more aspects of holistic, and so many more aspects of what goes in your body, and then how that impacts the environment. And the reality is I think the fashion part of that, the trendiness started 10 or 12 years ago. Now it's so much more common. Mm -hmm. 10 or 12 years ago, going back to your intro on my exposure was nobody knew about that. So it was kind of the cool kids, right? The cool kids understood that. Right. Or the hippies understood that, which as you go back to that was was a lot of the groundswell of of that movement in the 60s and 70s, a little bit anti-establishment. But a lot of that was holistic. A lot of that was communal. A lot of that comes down to food, right? Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of that had to do with the cool kid factor 20 years ago where nobody was talking about it versus some of the cool kids could, more the urban hipster could, or those that care deeply about the environment. And then over time, that just became so much organically, no pun intended, that became more trendy. So you're seeing this shift in culture and in the things we care about, and you're part of a really big Fortune 500 company, when did you start to see changes within or when did you start saying, hey, we need to be thinking a little differently? As far as me or just as far as... Yeah, well, I mean, you at a certain point, you went and worked in organics. Yeah, was yeah, that yeah. your Was well, that your choice? Did you want to be there? I love that question. Um, you know, General Mills was amazing. The leadership... Um, as far as the foresight, I mean, they bought into these brands, which were Muir, Glen, and Cascadian Farm, late 90s-ish, early 00s-ish, before anybody else was doing this. I think Kellogg's had Kashi at that point in time. But that, but that wasn't what was going on in the food industry. And those were existing brands that they acquired? That is correct. Okay. That is correct. And they were gargantuan in that space, mm-hmm. $30, $40, 50000000 million, which was huge back then. And General Mills leadership had the foresight really to say, we need to get into this. We see where this trend is going. But they knew nothing about it. They didn't know how to play in it. They didn't understand the consumer. They didn't understand the margins. They didn't know. I I don't think that it was really coming as much as it came. But they were well ahead of every other corporation in that late late 90s and early 00s. So I got involved. And again, you go back to entrepreneur in a corporate setting. So fortunately, I had a mentor, a wonderful man who gave me gave me every oddball opportunity in the company. So it's all the jobs that nobody really understood or nobody wanted because mm-hmm. they weren't what I called corporate and process jobs. He knew that's what I love to do and probably was pretty good at it of all the odd jobs that other people could, just couldn't wrap their head around. Yep. He knew that you put me in a traditional job. I was not nearly as talented as some of the other people there that if you think of that as competition, these people aren't competition. They were my friends. But if you think of jobs, they were so much better at that process job, so much better at that corporate job because the parameters of that, the dynamics of that are completely different than all these oddball jobs that I had in different channels that were emerging, early state Costco, Early state organic, early state Walmart. I'm going way back. Mm-hmm. This mentor of mine did an amazing job of, of getting me exposure to this. 
What happened then is it runs its course, which is once you get to a certain level, there's no more odd jobs. You have to go into the process job. And to me, that was like pulling teeth. Like, and I wouldn't have been that good at it or effective at it as defined as, as I would see my peer set within the company. So at that point, you said, all right, it's time that I, I probably leave. And you saw this kind of groundswell happening. You could see some, some movement. You could see something here. The challenge was this was right at the height of the economic crisis. Right. So this is 06-ish, 05, 07, somewhere around there. And so when I made the jump, you could see it coming on, right, this whole movement. But the timing wasn't right because there was no money, right? And so what happened then is flash forward three or four or five years. Now I'm into maybe 10, 11 12. Well, now the big companies are starting to buy smaller companies. Now, private in the e- organic space. In the organic space. Yeah. Now, private equity is seeing opportunity here. So now there's just money kind of coming in. Then the multiples started getting higher. The valuation started getting higher. All of this innovation. Because at the end of the day, the innovation is fueled by people having a passion, going back to the foodie, mm-hmm. the movement, the, the environment. It's also fueled by money. You know, at the end of the day, these people have to have money to be made. And at that point in time, there was just a in, massive influx, generally of private equity money, because they could see the corporate, the strategic acquisitions happening, or even private equity selling to private equity selling to private equity. It became just as much as a financial game versus early on, you know, when I first got into the industry, that wasn't even the case. Mm-hmm. It was a whole bunch of people wanting to save the world at the end of the day. Now, that still exists. Don't get me wrong. But there's a, so much stronger capitalism component to this that comes with all the private equity and the strategic money that's starting to come into play. Interesting. As example, every corporate has a General Mills is a 301 Inc. John Haugen and his team have done a fantastic job of investing in these companies and helping them to incubate. The reality, Within General Mills. Correct. The reality is every single corporation has some innovation arm mm-hmm. that has money or time that they're infusing into these little companies with the concept of if we can try to help them along and we can buy a stake in them if they're doing 10 or 20 million. Right. Or they can do what Mills had to do with Blue Buffalo at a billion dollars in sales and spend an eight billion dollars for us. So you might as well play a little bit earlier. It's just changed the dynamics, right? Why can't a big company like General Mills just develop its own, you know, organic this or that, something that's more natural? Why do they have to go buy these smaller companies? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think I think there's a couple a couple reasons. Um, go back to the skill set. You know, I, I kind of said I was the oddball a little bit. And I go back to what I was good at and what I wasn't good at. Like, they're all good at one thing to me, and that's taking something and making it a little bit bigger. It's not radically starting from scratch. That's not rewarded in in any organization like that. What's rewarded tends to be a much more strategic approach versus a grinder approach. The entrepreneur is a grinder, right? A corporate success to me is defined as you're managing more of an internal component of the business and a much more strategic approach. It's why oftentimes the, the, the corporate person can't translate to success in a small business. Small business might be 10% strategic and it's 90% grinding. It's just getting dirty and ugly and kind of figuring out what needs to happen. Mm-hmm. So I think you take you start with the skill set, right? But then you just go to size. And, and the way that people have been trained to build brands in a place like General Mills is radically different than the way that you have to build them in a small business. Do you think that's changing? I mean, obviously, they have all of these big companies now have their accelerator and incubator programs. But is it sort of kept over on the side and they still sort of have those core values of big business? Or do you think they're starting to realize we got to change the whole way we think about this? It's so hard. I mean, if, if you think of how small these businesses are still the big scheme of things, you know, Mm -hmm. like when people, the entrepreneur, like the world I play and always jokes like, oh, the corporate doesn't get it. Oh, no, they get it. These are brilliant people. I mean, I think of the marketers at Mills, the general management, the leadership. These people are through the roof in terms of intellect and business understanding. They get it. Mm -hmm. You can't move a ship that's doing 15 billion dollars, 20 billion dollars in revenue to pivot for a business doing 50 million. You just can't do it. Yeah. And you can't buy all of that to take your eye off of a ball that's still 98% of your business, right? Mm-hmm. I think going back to your initial question too, I think the other piece of the why, it's kind of like the entrepreneur that starts a business. If you really unwind why entrepreneurs start a business, it's not for money, right? Mm-hmm. It's for passion. It's for health. It's to save the world. It's to save the environment. It's 
I was touched because somebody had cancer. I was touched because somebody did this or somebody had this, or they just see a, a, a need, a market need, my business. I wasn't smart enough to figure out the brand piece, but there was an insight that said the way that the sales process was running in these little businesses was flawed. Hmm. I look back now, it wasn't to say I want to make a whole bunch of money and sell a business. It literally was, there's something here that I want to figure out. So you go back to the corporation, right? Or even a small business. They're not started generally just to make money. If they, if people get into the business saying, I'm in this for one reason, which is money, they tend to fail. So you go back to corporation. Why can't they do it? Because I think there's a misalignment there out of the gates. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, everybody needs and wants to make money. That's not why they start. So why can't a corporation start it? I think a lot of it has to do with the, the lack of authenticity that comes with if they start it, it's for one reason, to make money. Right, right. Really Great and point. I think that that's a, that, that's a, that's a troublesome scenario. So going back to you personally, you'd been at Mills and kind of climbed the ranks and you're working on these um, startup brands within this large organization. Did you start to realize I'm an entrepreneur in a Fortune 500 yeah. suit? <laughs> was that was it, that kind of the aha for you? It really was. You know, like you, you look back now and I, I vividly remember these conversations with people like for right or for wrong, I, I, I had influence over Young, younger people. Like I was a job where you managed a lot of people. And what worked for me in a corporate environment would not have worked for them. And I always said, look, do as I say, not as I do, right? What I do is work for me. It's probably not going to be in your best interest to operate in the manner that I do, right? And you unwind that. And it really was just to say, don't do this. Mm -hmm. like, and, and then you keep unwinding to say, I am not doing this organization justice because my process is flawed, right? And you can't have people like a corporation that everybody lined up going in one direction. And I was always kind of 10 yards behind or 10 yards to the left or right. And that's not good for the organization. And that's not good for you either, right? So you left, you start Ignite. Did you know that you had any clients? Did you just put out a sign and say, hey, I'm here to help the startups? I, I, everything is luck, right? Everything is timing and luck. And I have this big grin on my face because I vividly remember, um, she got to be a dear friend of mine. Her name was Beata Pabian. So if she's listening today, she'll hear her <laughs> name on my first podcast. So I was her boss. I actually let her go at General Mills. Long story, unwind it, too much information to tell. Because she was a, she was a uh, organic junkie. I mean, she was saving the world with environment, right? And she wanted to move to go work for Wild Oats, which has since been bought by Whole Foods, in Boulder, which Boulder still is the mecca of the natural food movement, in my opinion, in the United States. Probably in the world. Um, so she went to work for Wild Oats. So now she's a buyer. So as I'm talking to her, you know, after she had left and just kind of understanding what's going on, she's like, Kent, there are 8 million of these little companies that find their way into me that have these amazing products that know absolutely nothing what to do. Hmm. So that was one of the key insights into – um, th there's a need to bring more sophistication, more st sales strategy, because a lot of a lot of the um, a lot of the entrepreneurs that have started food companies, they're not strong business people. Some of them are. Sure. They're creatives, right? And you can't put a creative in a process and to create the brand. The creative is enough to create the product and grinding that out. But how do you truly scale that? That becomes a business skill set. So, and I go back to a lot of our early state Ignite clients, they were very creatives. They could have been an engineer. They could have been this. They could have been an artist. That was the entrepreneur mindset. Structure, process, systems, roles, responsibility. That is what the corporate piece was mm -hmm. that we tried to bring to the entrepreneurs, right? So, I don't know if I answered your question yeah. exactly. I kind well, of I just was curious. So you've got you've you've zeroed in on a, a missing piece. There's a niche here that you can fill with a service. How did you get clients? Yeah. So going, and I'm sorry, I got sidetracked. No, there. that's you fine. You get me talking about this. You, talk, you give an entrepreneur <laughs> forum, and I won't shut up, and you're rolling your eyes like what. Um, so Beata basically then introduced me, um, even early on. I mean, I think I was working at Mills or maybe I had left, um, just to kind of have conversations with some of these people, right? And then what happened is my wife worked for General Mills as well. So we left on the same day and we took six months off. Right? Wow. And the concept there was we didn't have kids. The concept there was let's go travel the world. So we spent a month or two in Africa and Australia, New Zealand and France and Greece. And I don't know where we went. We kind of had this awesome, awesome trip. Nice. But the other part of that was clearing your brain. Like it, to me, I don't think it's really 
you don't, or at least I don't, have capability to multitask and, and see things, you know, I can do one thing at a time. When you're in a corporate job, it's pretty intense. So I knew that there was insight, but I needed more kind of freedom of thought time to kind of figure that out. So those were the times where you're just, I had six months and you're just kind of figuring it out. And then we'd come back to the States for a couple of weeks. And then I talked to some of these entrepreneurs and you get a few more things in your head that really made the idea crystallize. And then it was as easy as going back to these people that I was using as kind of sounding boards and basically saying, hey, let's talk about how we can make an arrangement work, mm-hmm. right? And so it was pennies in the big scheme of things, but it gave you the confidence to leave a corporate job. And then once you were ready to start working again, it gave me the, at least a little bit of income sure. that helped you then put some in your pocket to pay basic bills, but also to kind of start squirreling away because I was non-funded. I owned the whole business. It literally was another client, another person, another did client. You, did your wife work with you? She did. Uh, a little bit. I mean, she... Um, I don't know. We could work together all the time. She did all of the stuff that I didn't have to do or that I couldn't do, and that was a blessing. So how do you incorporate? How do you develop a QuickBooks financial? How do you do invoicing component? How do you do all the state? We had a complicated business early on because we had clients in a bunch of different states. We had some contract employees, some real employee or regular employees, and it was complicated. And just having somebody that Sure. Did not force me to get into that level of the detail. The administrative side. She did all the back of the house. And what? Where do you excel? What? What's your sweet spot? <laughs> in a business. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, in a business. Comic relief. <laughs> I don't know. Um, you know, I I think there. I think for me, I guess probably what I enjoy, and I think probably what I'm good at is the relationship component. That's where it starts. But then also kind of putting the pieces together, bring bringing the talent into the organization. You know, our success, the reality was, was, was two things. Finding the right clients and aligning with clients that would have been successful whether we were there or not. But identifying those early on. Developing relationships with those clients. We're a service. A service is all about relationship. But then bringing in the team and putting the right people in the right places to help them build their businesses. I think that's probably what I, I look back, that's probably what I did. And that's what I really still enjoy working with entrepreneurs on is, you know, the number of people that say, gosh, I want to bring on a corporate person. No, you don't. Or I need to bring on a CFO. You need a bookkeeper. Like, so you don't need to spend 100000 200000 300000 whatever the math is a year on a high-powered person when you need them for 10% of your time. So let's go get a consultant to help us with cash flow or let's go get a contract CFO and buy a slim amount of their time and let's go get a grinder that we can pay, you know, not a lot of money to to help us kind of manage the books, you know, cash in, cash out kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so it was kind of understanding that and then also understanding the talent acquisition that I think that I'm pretty good at of bringing people in and putting them in the right places. And there's a lot of stuff I'm bad at. What? But <laughs> it's that's, good to know that, too. It, it is. But that's where it was fortunate, I think, to bring in these people that were really influential in scaling our clients' businesses. When you think about some of the big name brands that you've worked on, do you feel like it was obvious to you from the first day you encountered them that these brands were going places? I mean, Talenti or Beyond Meat. I mean, talk about a brand that's been in the news. Yeah. Did you see that? Did you know what was going to happen? Well, so there's two things. I mean, the reality is early, early, early on, it's all about the entrepreneur. Like you are betting on the entrepreneur, not their brand, not their idea. You're betting on the scrappiness that they're going to figure it out. The number of businesses that we have worked with that did a 180 pivot, right, that they were smart enough to be like, and you knew that these were sharp people. You knew they might not have been in the right area, right, in terms of starting at 0.7, but they needed to get to 0.15 in a completely different product line. That you're betting on the entrepreneur, which is still what I do. And from an investment standpoint, more of a venture component, you're betting on them more than their idea. Mm -hmm. And some people have that it factor. So we were fortunate early, early, early on where you're betting on the entrepreneur. As we scaled, once businesses got to a certain threshold, well, then you could see. Then you were looking for the convergence of their business, which you could see from data early on. If somebody's doing $3 million in revenue and it's really strong at everywhere and the growth is there regardless of what they're doing, that's there. But that still isn't enough. Then it was about the entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. So let's use Talenti. You know, brilliant brand. Steve Gill, who was the CEO, um, He's on a whole other plane. And you knew that from the first 30 seconds you met him. Ethan Brown at Beyond Meat, you know, their turns, he had the vision. And this guy was 
unbelievable in terms of creation and vision and everything you ever need. So he blew us away there. His product was okay when they started. Mm-hmm. Um, it was doing fine. It wasn't killing it. It was early, early, early state. But you sit with that guy for two minutes and whatever he's talking about, you're buying. Hmm. Like, and those that have met him would absolutely say that of brilliance beyond comprehension in the food world, which that doesn't happen to the extreme. And he clearly was the, the beneficiary in his business and his brand and the environment and everything that he was trying to change. He did it very successfully. Do you think as more uh, people are getting inspired to to try to create the next Talenti, the next Beyond Meat, is it is it getting harder to, to have that runaway hit or is it easier today because there's so much more money being thrown at startups or there are accelerator programs and incubators and at big companies and beyond? Um, I think it's definitely harder. Um, and not harder because every good idea has been taken. I mean, the, the brutal reality of everything is what is truly innovation in the food space. Mm-hmm. Talenti at the end of the day was a better ice cream. Ice cream existed. Yeah, it was gelato. I could go on and on and on. But it was better. But is it really radical? Beyond Meat. Beyond Meat was a meat you know, alternative that the reality is there was a lot out there. Did it taste? There was a shift of the analog. There was a shift of texture of meat and taste of meat, which that was somewhat radical. The other businesses, we were Blake's All Natural, which uh, ultimately sold to ConAgra. It was just a better pot pie. Essential Water, which is a, which is we're still involved in. The reality, it's an amazing water, but it's an enhanced water that has existed in the marketplace for years and years and years. So the idea to me, um, the ideas are, are almost everything just keeps getting recycled. It's harder because of the money. It's harder because of the competition. Whereas 15 years ago, there might be two players in the bar category. I'm making that up. Mm-hmm. Now, if you walk the halls of Expo West and Expo East and the fancy food shows and the innovation markets that we'll call them, there's 8 million of them. And that's driven by a lot more people wanting to change the world, right? Because now that's much more exposure to that world. Mm-hmm. But then it's driven more so by the amount of money that's coming in. And therefore, it enables these entrepreneurs to do stupid, non-scalable, non-fundamental things in their business, hmm. right? Which then makes it harder for somebody else who's trying to do it the right way or someone who may not have the money to compete against these these others that are just kind of spending in craziness and spending in chaos. Right. And the reality is not sustainable. You know, none of these businesses are making money or very few of them are because they're all chasing the dream either of saving the world or as it transfers into private equity of how do we sell it to the next the next business where it really becomes much more about top line growth than it does about a sustainable, scalable 20-year model making 10 or 15% EBITDA kind of thing. So who's doing it right right now? Who, who, are, the, who are the good examples? Oh, my gosh. I'm pausing. You know, I mean, I think I really like what 301 Inc. does at General Mills, right? Um, I really have enjoyed what they have done. Who's doing it right? What about a brand that you think is is scaling in a sustainable way? So I, you have to look at you have to look at Beyond Meat, mm-hmm. right? I mean, all this is public. So ninety million dollar business last year, ish, give or take. Now growing at one hundred and twenty five percent a year, losing thirty million dollars. Market cap now of six billion, losing thirty million when they went public. My numbers are going to be off. So what if they're off by 50%? It's not going to mean anything. Mm-hmm. Well, now all of a sudden, flash forward six months-ish after they've gone public, they're turning a profit, right? And now you see everything of every McDonald's, every Burger, every Burger King between Beyond Meat and Impossible Burger, they're starting to get the scale that was always part of their model, which then profit's going to follow. So to go from losing $30 million in you know one year, one quarter, to making money in a very short period of time says they're doing something right, as defined by the financials, and then you say doing what's right is defined by the founders, which was all about the environment, right? All about health attributes of the product. Mm-hmm. I bet if you talk to Ethan now, he won the game because he figured out a way to bridge the financial success right. with the personal success and is truly changing the world at a scale that's meaningful versus some of these other businesses that might sell to 30 or $40 million, still amazing, but the, the scale just isn't there to truly make a meaningful difference in the world. So I think who's winning, who's doing it right, I point to them. It's kind of a sexy category. It's a sexy brand because they won on both fronts, which is changing the world and the environment and also figuring a way to make a lot of money for a lot of different people, yeah. including the shareholders today by starting to turn profit. 
profit. For sure. Uh, do you think it's possible today because there is all this, you know, VC money and we've talked to so many entrepreneurs here on, on this podcast who, you know, both old school who say, gosh, I think it was easier when we just had to like build it up and reinvest. And, you know, those who feel the pressure to go out and get the money. Can you even do it today if you don't go get the big dollars and you don't think about going public and, and scaling so quickly? You can. It's harder. You know, I mean, I, I think uh, it, depend, it depends what size you're talking about. So we, we worked with a business, dear friend of mine, um, Chris Licata from Blake's All Natural. So he sold to ConAgra. Well, he sold when he was doing 20 million ish in revenue, right? Now he won the game as his definition, but he was also at a tipping point where he needed a new plant. You need more working capital. He would have had to bring in more money. Mm. So he got to the point he got by a few investments and some of his family money and a few friends and here and there, but not really anything major that would require institutional capital as defined as putting five or six or seven more million dollars into the business. So he made it to his goal. Right. So that's how you define it. It absolutely is, which is yeah. anything of the success of who's doing it right, who's doing it wrong. It depends how you define that. So what is your advice when you talk to other food and beverage entrepreneurs? What is the right time to, to sell? This is, this is what we encouraged or did encourage a lot of the early state companies that we dealt with is to say, define your success and define your time. Right. Um, and it's really up to them. I mean, it truly is. Like there are like, – to me, there are thresholds in a business that I would walk anybody down. Starting a business is a threshold. Like getting it off the ground, like first dollar is, is a milestone. Ten million. Once you cross – generally speaking, there are some businesses that go from nothing to 100 million in a hurry. But in most of the grinder businesses, 10 million is a big threshold, right? At 10 million, it starts to say there's a different skill set that starts to get required. Now it's starting to think about moving beyond a bookkeeper into a little bit more of a controller maybe on the financial component, which is a little bit more strategic. Mm -hmm. 20 million is another milestone. 50 million, 100 million. These are huge milestones that each step that you go by requires a complete alteration of skill set and team and augmentation and what pieces need to be put together, right? And so go back to our company a little bit or where I play, I think that we're really good at helping someone get to maybe 30 or 40 million. We have examples of moving beyond that, but that's where you bring in the corporate person. Maybe not there, maybe a hundred million. Who would do that a hundred times better than I ever could? Sure. So there's a self awareness I think that we would try to coach the the entrepreneurs and the clients to say. So I think going back to at what point is that? It just depends on them mm -hmm. and their skill sets. And at what point is their skill set truly maximized? Most of the businesses outgrow the entrepreneurs. Hmm. The ones that then truly achieve meaningful scale understand that, and they take a back seat to become founder not CEO. You bring in that corporate person, you bring in somebody who has a little bit more experience, they're there to, to help you achieve the mission. But those that are truly self-aware, I think, have much more ability to scale their businesses because they know when they need to take a step back and let those other people come on and take it to the next generation. It's a hard realization. Absolutely. It is. That's an ego. It's like your a, baby. 100%. Like that ego piece gets in the way and the mission and the passion. But right. if done correctly... It's amazing. So go back to you. You you have a lot of success. You help a lot of brands grow. You know your sweet spot. Why did you decide to sell Ignite, your company, a few years ago? <laughs> Had a, enough? What a good question. Life cycle. Um, I was about eight years in. I, I think the life cycle of an entrepreneur is seven to ten years That seven-year itch, huh? It was crazy, man. <laughs> I mean, you're traveling and there's a lot going on. You know, we had 50 people-ish we had clients. Um, I'm not a big stress guy, but there was a lot going on. And then the why is, you know, you just go to your life. Like, what do you, um, you know, what do you want mm -hmm. out of life? Mm -hmm. And you're traveling a lot. You're, I mean, you, if, if success is defined as commercial or financial or industry or recognition, I mean, we achieve that. Um, and it was great. It was really validating. But the reality is then I had three little kids at the time. So they were, shoot, I don't know, six and three and one or something like that. And you're just not there enough. And when you are there, you're kind of tired because there's a lot going on. You know, in the reality, we were in a service. We're in a service with clients all around the world. And being, I think, having success in the service industry, you put your clients above yourself. Now, what does that mean? That means that you're on all the time. 
right? And that that was it was amazing. And these people, the clients, were my friends, and it was awesome. But the priority of of family to me had the potential to get very much out of whack. So I'm starting to go through this mentally, like, huh? Just just pausing, thinking about this. Literally two days later, Acosta called and was like, "Would you ever be interested in selling your company?" And I'm like, "Well, as a matter of fact, yeah. Let's let's talk through this." And the people that I was dealing with were my buddies, and you know they were influential in helping us create our business. And you know I go on and on and on, and and it, it was a nice fit. It was a good thing. So that's the why. Again, it wasn't I'm ready to make a bunch of money or I'm ready to do this. Not that we did, but it's um, it was just more about that timing, more on the personal side, and then to yeah. say. I can do a modified version of career under the under the auspice which I do now, which is you take the kids to school and you pick them up. And to do that, because I got I got married later in life, I had kids later in life. Most people don't get that chance. Meaning, if you ever sell a business or a financial success, sometimes comes later on in life when the kids are in college and where you're a lot. Well, I'm older, but I had these little kids. So you're like, why wouldn't you want to do this? Mm-hmm. And it was very emotional because these these employees are my friends, and I mean that was a, and the clients. I mean, we were tight, like beyond comprehension. And that was really, really emotional and really, really hard. But then you kept having to come back to, well, what's the priority? Right. You know, is the priority this or is the priority, you say, these three little kids and your family and your wife and all that. And that's where I came back to every time. Was it easier to, to just like leave completely? That I mean, like, did you kind of just – how do you make that break? You know, I think what I, what I would tell anybody, sell your business and just get out. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally, because you, you, at that point you're in the way. Like be on payroll so if they need something from you, but get out because the, the business, their business is going to change and conform to the corporation and the entrepreneur isn't going to like that. So for me in that was we put people in place. I kind of I, I worked for them for a year, but we already had succession mapped out three months in that I was really behind the scenes that I'm there if they need me. Otherwise, the reality is you probably would have fought with the parent company to say, you don't know, you know, like most entrepreneurs, you don't know what they're doing and right. they do. Like these right. people are smart people and they are, and they buy businesses for a reason and they make them more successful. It's a different level of success in the entrepreneur, which is why it's always funny. Generally, you hear the entrepreneurs, you hear the industry talk about they're running the business into the ground. Well, no, the reality is the business never made any money and somebody like General Mills comes in and figures out a way to scale it and start making money. It's just the definition of success by the entrepreneur and the definition of success hmm. by the corporation are very, very, very Two different. One hundred percent. So, as an advisor, that seems like fairly similar kind of work to what you were doing when it was a, a bigger company, when it was Ignite. Um, how many boards are you on? Do you even know off the top of your head? So, we've probably made angel investments in ten or twelve different companies, formal boards, maybe three. Okay. What about the decision to become an owner to invest in Peace Coffee? Yeah. um, So that was cool. Um, It's really cool. (laughs) So, uh, um, you know, there there was an employee of us, of Ignite, one of our first employees, one of our most successful employees, amazing, amazing, amazing person. And she worked for Peace Coffee before she worked for Ignite. And there's going to be really interesting insight as I unwind this. Peace Coffee at that point was doing this is this goes back ten years ago, right? They're probably doing a million dollars, and in revenue, maybe five hundred thousand. And she loved the people, and she loved the mission, and she loved the coffee. It was just too chaotic for her. It she was, was fair trade. The whole idea of peace is fair trade, organic, treating farmers ethically, doing what's right by the environment. I say it's everything anyone else does on steroids. Like Lee and her team have done just a fabulous job over the years. So this employee basically worked for Peace, came to us, and she talked about Peace Coffee for years and years and years. So right before we took, um, after we sold the business, we took the kids, we took a family trip to Europe for about four months just to kind of get away. But right before we left, I was introduced to the CEO by this ex-employee, really connected with her, amazing person, amazing mission, amazing product. And you could see they were on the cusp. You go back to, you just kind of know. So you're betting on the entrepreneur, which I would bet on Lee Wallace, the CEO, all day long. But then you can see what they're doing in the marketplace in terms of data and say, there's some really strong business fundamentals here. So flash forward, we left. About a year after that, we jointly bought the business. She got connected with me just to try to start networking, knowing that the govern- the, the ownership structure at that point in time wanted to get out of the business. Mm. And then we just started talking. 
I loved what she was doing. I loved what the business was doing. I met some of the people on the team. I loved all of them. And we basically said, let's buy the business. So we did that about a year and a half ago. And how much has it grown or changed since then? Um, you know, changed a lot more than it's grown because now, um, you know, you also don't realize what goes into this, right? So we, they didn't have the money. It was owned by the Institute of Agriculture and Trade Policy, right? So they didn't have money to put into the business. It was just all on a shoestring. So any of the investment mechanisms that I call foundational, you got the sexy stuff like brand and product and website and all of that on the forefront of the consumer. And then you have all the guts of the company. We had to basically strip back all the guts. New financial, right? So training people, ERP system, all of that guts. We were at the end of the roastery, meaning we are operating at 90 plus percent capacity utilization. So we spent the last year kind of building that out and getting that functional starting in January. We then had to redo the website and redo all the fulfillment and start really talent acquisition and looking at all of the things that aren't sexy in the company. Mm -hmm. That's where we spent our time. So the reality, we've continued to grow the business. You know, we're up maybe another 10 percent ish. Next year is going to be our big step group because now that we've kind of spent all this time resetting the foundation, now we've started building a pipeline to grow. We started putting money into the brand a lot more. We started bringing on different functionality into the company. Next year we'll grow, you know, knock on wood, 20% plus, which is really what we were looking for. Yeah. It just took a long time and a lot of money to kind of reset this foundation and for are things you, they couldn't do. Are you in this to build it up and sell it? Is you that know, the idea? We don't know. I mean, I think if you get in with that clear of a definition um, – that's the wrong reason. I mean, I got in, I felt there was a business here. You got in, which I went back to, if you get into a business solely to make money, to create it, I don't think it could be successful, right? I mean, some are, but I think generally speaking, you have to have a higher mission, higher vision, higher passion, because right. I think then that will fuel success if that is defined as financial. So are we looking to build and sell? We will. What is that timeline? Time will tell. Um, or it'd be nice to have the backdrop and say, look, you know, because we are still the ownership structure, if we want to hold this thing, we can. Now, a lot of that's going to come down to how much more money has to come in and what are the partners and things are going to get more complicated than really it was just Lee and I kind of owning the business. As we look at the next generation of growth, we're going to have to bring in some capital. So who are the partners that we're going to bring in and what do they want to achieve as well? That's something that we're going to have to balance. So when you think about where you are today and the various things you have going on and everything you've done, what excites you? Is is it the is it the products? Is it the people? Is it building a business what what gets you really excited to work you know i think it's the it's building the business and how that translates to people so um the product's a byproduct meaning i'm not a big foodie people joke i have a turkey sandwich <laughs> for lunch every day and i'll order a hamburger if we, i mean i'm just i'm a really basic guy you don't care about organic um, about eating? no not that i don't care i mean okay. it's, but it's more about the environment than it is about the food to mm -hmm, me um mm -hmm. I'm more interested in having others achieve what they like. That's having others achieve what they want to achieve is how I kind of get my excitement, right? So how that relates to building a business. If you can build a bigger business, that means you can bring in more people into your organization as you scale. That's why I loved Ignite. Like we did really cool stuff, right? So we had, you know, we would take team trips with spouses to ireland italy jamaica i mean we took 100 plus people to italy one year like that was so cool and the depth of relationship and to hear um <clears throat> excuse me people talk about their spouses loving their jobs so much and their relationships are better and they have more balance like that stuff to me was life-changing not functional which is how do we make more money in a business but the reality is how do you make more money in a business translates to how do we bring on more people to try to make a difference I think what I'm most proud of, uh, of what we did back to Ignite, you know, we sold the business three and a half years ago and we had a team reunion about a month ago in Florida. Every single, I think we had two people who didn't make it. Hmm. Like not because they had to, not because there's somebody picking up the bill. Like these are people that wanted to get together. It's three and a half years ago. And wow. I think we had literally had 95 plus percent of the employees show up down in Florida for three or four days or whatever we did. Like that to me is really telling on the relationship, on the family atmosphere that we built within Ignite. That's what would drive me is to be part of another business or eventually run another business when my kids are a little bit older mm -hmm. to try to recreate that same thing. The byproduct of that is 
taking this bottle of water that we have here and making it bigger. And I mean, that's a fun aspect, but seeing all the peripherals, seeing the personnel development, seeing people enjoy, seeing people, you know, fulfill whatever it is their obligation or their expectation is, or feel them, however they define success, helping them achieve that through that business. That's really cool to me. Yeah, absolutely. So is there a certain sector or part of um, organic foods that intrigues you right now that you're watching closely for when you're ready for that next thing? Or is it just sort of whoever you meet and it happens organically? Yeah, probably organically. I mean, I mean, if you look at all the innovation right now, I mean, beverage, there's so much innovation. I mean, beverage includes coffee, right? Or bottled water. There's so much innovation. Snacking, portability, lower sugar. There's a lot of stuff that's going on right now. That's just kind of foundational stuff. But then when I'm ready to do this in 10 years from now, Lord only knows what's going to be up. Lord only knows what the next regeneration is or what the next organic or natural or holistic or carbohydrates or low fat or low sugar. Who knows, right? <laughs> or all the sexy terms that we don't even know what it is. Like mm-hmm. I always laugh at what we were talking about 10 years in food as being important is now an absolute joke, right? Yeah. And now you get into keto and now you get into, you know, caveman and you get into paleo and stuff that 10 years ago we would have said that's horrible for you. So what is going to be the insight in 10 years that's going to fuel that? Who knows? But hmm. right now I think there's just so much going on. Obviously now in the in the meat alternative space because of Impossible and Beyond Meat, but also in terms of beverage, bottled water, brands like Essentia, or you get into other enhanced. There's a lot of stuff going on right there that's really cool as well. Hmm. What about just basic fruit? I love Whatever it. happened to just a banana? <laughs> and a strawberry, and that's maybe, all I need, right? <laughs> maybe you could do something with that, Kent. If anyone could do it, you can. I don't know about that. I'm, I'm not the idea guy, but, thank, <laughs> but thanks for the vote of confidence, Well, right? we'll be watching. We know wherever you go, big things happen. Have a have a cup of peace coffee in the meantime. Kent, thank you so much for sharing your story. Stick around. We're going to go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. Thanks, Kent. Thank you. As you heard, Kent has really zeroed in on a niche between the world of entrepreneurs and the big corporations. How do you find that bridge and why is it important to your business? Let's go to the experts. We're talking to Professor David Deeds. He's the Schultz Professor of Entrepreneurship at the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So Kent's story is fascinating, and he does really bring to the forefront this challenge because of the differences in cultures and skills and expectations between an entrepreneurial venture and a large corporation. And it's a long entrepreneurial venture probably along your way. You're going to need that large corporate partner. Right. And it may well be your exit. They're going to bring things to the game that you don't have, branding, marketing, you know, fulfillment processes, regulatory skills, you name it, that you're either going to have to build yourself or you're going to have to find a way to work with. Yeah. And it is a very different mindset between the two. And it becomes a challenge. So we've talked to a lot of people on this show who came from that Fortune 500 world and went out and took those skills and went off and started their own venture. Ken's a little different because he sort of had a foot in, in each world. If you are the entrepreneur who maybe hasn't had that Fortune 500 experience, what, do you need someone like Kent or do you just kind of need to, to learn the ropes? I think you can go either way. There are people like Kent out there. I think Kent's a particularly good example of bridging that gap and helping firms, ventures grow to the point of being an interesting acquisition target um, or even grow beyond that if they if they look, look at it. Although he said, you know, my limit's about $40 million yeah. kind of thing. Not a bad limit. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you're going to have to find that or, again, you're going to have to Learn it. You're going to have to grow into it. You know, the, the transition between when you're not, when you're a five person or a ten person venture, everybody does a little everything. You know everybody. When you're a twenty person venture, you pretty much know everybody, but not everybody can do anything. You now got to put structures. Mm-hmm. When you're a hundred, when you're five hundred people, now you've got to have structures. You don't know anybody. You have to become a structured organization with roles and strengths and deep benches in different places. And you also have to prepare to grow. 
And so somebody like Kent that has that training but has a natural understanding. The problem is so much that comes out from corporations. They don't have the understanding and appreciation of what needs to be done. And it's that point in between that, that Kent's helping to fill out. This is actually very difficult for a lot of organizations. Um, that 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 valley of death, as we've heard from other entrepreneurs and yeah. things, it's that getting past the rapid growth, making through, sure you get to the cash flow, making sure your operations become efficient and effective. Right. And, and I also, think, I think for entrepreneurs, that's not really the part they want to think about, right? They don't want to become a big, stuffy corporation. They want to be a renegade. They and yes, and they have been. They either didn't go into corporate by by choice. Mm-hmm. They fl- they fled corporations by choice, and you you often hear talking to entrepreneurs as it begins growing and taking off, um, and you'll hear from founding teams. It's just no fun anymore. Mm-hmm. It's just no fun anymore. And you know what? Listen to yourselves. Because when you're starting to see that, you either need to bring people in to help make it fun again, mm-hmm. or it's time to start thinking about that exit. Right. It's time to start thinking that, you know what, maybe we've run this one. Maybe we're now at that point where we need to find that buyer um, who can take it to the next level and who is set up and enjoys and oriented towards those processes and those scales and those yeah. day-to-day um, kinds of issues and, and strategies. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for the insights. It helps to break it down and you kind of see how, how you work through all of those steps along the way. Thank you, Professor Deeds. And thank you to our sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. If you haven't already, please subscribe to By All Means wherever you listen to podcasts and take just a minute to rate and review us. It really helps the show. I'm Allison Kaplan. On behalf of Twin Cities Business, thanks for listening to By All Means. Teamwork to make by all means, and we've got some all stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Senior Media Relations Manager, Benita Sakar, and Associate Dean of the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, Laura Dunham, for all their help. Our theme music is by Songfinch. Hope you enjoyed by all means. Bye.